Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the show where three brothers who know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan, and sure, Abstergo isn't great, but think about all the jobs they provide. I'm Jason, and I think some things just shouldn't be permitted. And Jackson couldn't be here because he accidentally cut off his finger with a hidden blade. We at TBM have a long and storied history with Assassin's Creed. Long enough that we remember when the series was good. Mirage is Ubisoft's attempt to write the course for the Assassins. But did they finally get it right? Let's get into it. So long and storied is an interesting way to put it. I don't know a more succinct way to put it, but it definitely feels, uh, it, that makes it sound grander than it is. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of, um, ups and downs, mostly downs. Yeah. Well, it's weird because I think there were a lot of really good Assassin's Creed's in like the beginning or not necessarily really good, but at least like there were, like, all the Assassin's Creed games were at least decent until, what, Black Flag, which was actually the sixth or seventh game in the series. Well, I didn't like Assassin's Creed 3. I, I felt like Black Flag was kind of returned to form. Because I, I think that Assassin's Creed 1 wasn't great, but after that, between, like, I, I really liked all the Ezio games. <laughs> so, I, I really liked 2, I really liked Brotherhood especially, and I liked revelations when i finally like sat down and played it mm -hmm. uh but i remember when assassin's creed 3 came out and maybe part of the issue is that we did get it for the wii u uh <laughs> yeah but it was not a good not the ideal not a good experience in my mind like i liked the story just fine and the characters but I don't, I don't know i think it was mostly how empty the world was in that game there was a lot of forest and just vegetated areas that and the combat wasn't great. Once again, that one might be the Wii U's fault, though. <laughs> right. I guess my thing is I just don't remember much of Assassin's Creed 3. Like, it was certainly the game I played the least of in the earlier parts of the series. But I know I really liked all of the other ones. Mm -hmm. But after that point, I just, I had a terrible time keeping up. And there were a few games that I thought were just unplayable basically i mean i i played unity at launch and hated it mm -hmm. i didn't go back to it after they fixed a lot of the issues and made it just a much smoother experience but you know didn't care for that one and the rpgs have been hit or miss at best yeah. <laughs> um and it's just i don't know and it's it's crappy because I think that this game was or this game series was on such a cool trajectory. I really like this whole idea of there being this story about this assassin's order over hundreds of years, and it was clearly building towards something big happening in the present day. And then when they were finally honing in on that, instead they were like, "Okay, now we're going to go further back in time than we ever have before." <laughs> And it's like they've just completely turned around and went the other direction for a while. So. Yeah, it's definitely it felt like everything was building up to this big present day battle or whatever, like you were saying. And then they they were just like, but let's see, how were the assassins founded? And I, I cannot make it any clearer. I didn't need to know why the assassins were founded. It was pretty set up what their goal was. <laughs> Yeah, and how that was affecting yeah. the present day. I feel like the games kind of hit a point where they stopped having this big 
I guess, emphasis on the fact that the stuff you were doing in the past was having a direct tangible effect on the present day. Not necessarily through like the butterfly effect or anything like that, but just in the early Assassin's Creed games, like the reason you were going into the Animus is because they were trying to track down these historical artifacts. And, you know, Assassin's Creed 1, you're kind of helping the Templars do that. And in the, the games afterwards, you're more or less trying to get them before the Templars can. Yeah. And then they just kind of realized that, I guess, the present day stuff was the weakest part. And I always felt like that was intentional, where each game, you did more and more stuff in the present day, and the, the gameplay was getting better in the present day, and then they just killed the protagonist Stopped. and dropped it. They For a while there, there just wasn't a modern day protagonist. It was just like a faceless stand-in that you, the player, were supposed to be filling. And then... They've set up a new protagonist with some of the more recent games, but then she's not in this game, so it's very confusing. I guess this is a lot of jargon that doesn't make any sense if you're you're not familiar with the series, though, so I'll, I'll take a step back and kind of explain a little bit. So the Assassin's Creed series is about uh, basically the ongoing war between two organizations, the Assassin's Brotherhood and the Knights Templar, and later called Abstergo. So these two organizations are basically both the Illuminati. <laughs> um, one of them's the good Illuminati, and the other is the r- evil Illuminati. Right. The, one is this is a group of uh, extrajudicial hooded stabbers, um, and the other group is a bunch of people that have taken over like religious movements and organ like business organizations and stuff um, to better their own needs. One one group is a. Uh... A large organization of hooded figures that skulk about and stab people in the night. And the other group is an is a it's a major corporation. So <laughs> yeah. basically similar levels of evil if you think about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a really interesting story that you know goes back to like 2000 BC or something like that. But basically there were just these two organizations that have been fighting for generations upon generations upon generations. So this group of Stergo who are basically the face of the modern Templars create a device called the animus, which is a device that takes your genetic makeup and lets you see the actions of your ancestors through their eyes. This is something that they're, saying is going to have all these you know incredible effects for studying history and for entertainment and for you know just also they're they're claiming it's going to have all these beneficial effects for society in reality what they are doing is they are using the animus to see what happened to these key figures that were parts of the assassins or the templar hundreds or thousands of years ago to try to track down these super powerful artifacts that have been hidden all over the world so this game uh, takes place in the ninth century, I believe, and it is uh, the story of Bossum, who is one of the one of the fairly early members of the Assassins, just a couple hundred years after the group was first founded, and it is the story of how he is dealing with a group of people that are Templars. <laughs> they have a stranglehold on the city of Baghdad. And it's up to him and a handful of other assassins from the Order to take them down to free the city. In this one, they're called the Order of the Ancients. 
Yes, the Order of the Ancients. That's essentially this is just one of the many uh, branches of the Templars or the group that will become the Templars. Oh, interesting. I think that the Order of the Ancients is a real group. That sounds right. I mean, it's definitely something I've heard outside of this game, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Well, specifically a real group tied to the Knights Templar. Makes sense. What what makes this even more confusing from a narrative standpoint, though, is the fact that there is this uh, thread, I guess, that ties all these games together about what's happening in the present day. But the stuff that's happening in the past, the stuff you're seeing through the Animus, has been told completely out of order at this point. It started in like the 10th century and then went all the way forward to like the turn of the 20th century and then randomly went back to like 400 BC for a while. And it's been like slowly working its way back a little bit. So this is the 13th game in the mainline series, the 29th game total. And somehow it's like uh, in like the first third chronologically. <laughs> I think this is the third game in the timeline. I think the only that games sounds before right. it are yeah. Origins and Odyssey. That, yeah, that, that sounds correct. And this is the immediate setup to Valhalla. This takes place just a few years before Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which was the last game that came out. And maybe the worst experience I've had with the Assassin's Creed franchise. <laughs> so uh, Mirage was really more than just a, a narrative continuation, though. It was kind of meant to be a return to form because as the Assassin's Creed series developed, it got away from its Assassin's roots and became more of open world RPG with lots of skill trees and abilities and gear with levels and damage numbers. And it really got away from the simplicity of just being an assassin and hiding in the shadows to take out targets. So this game is much, much more in line with Assassin's Creed one through uh, unity uh, syndicate syndicate was the last one. That's kind of right. Yeah. Black Flag was the last one I cared about, Unity was the one that was broken, and Syndicate was the last one that had this style of gameplay. Right. So it's been several years at this point, but we're kind of getting back to what Assassin's Creed started with. I don't know exactly what that means to you, Jason, but for me, when I first heard that they were kind of going back to the Assassin's Creed roots, my, my gut reaction was like, finally, <laughs> this is what they've needed to do for a while. But then in the several months between this game's reveal and its release, I started to get really nervous about like, well, maybe there was a reason <laughs> that they stopped making the games like this in the first place. So Yeah, I think I, I was pretty excited when I heard that there was like a return to form. I remember, I think they were just revealed it at like an E3 trailer or, you know, E3 alternative, whatever it was called. And they, they showed off like kind of the general idea of, taking you back to the Middle East, you know, making it more of a stealth-focused game. And I, I was pretty excited, but definitely not as excited as, like, Jackson was. We'll, we'll let you in on a little a peek behind the scenes here. Jackson was really like this game <laughs> way more than I ever expected. He was a lot more positive about this than almost any other reviewers. And it's really a bummer he's not here for this episode because I really, really like to hear his take on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Because well, I liked a lot about this game. Mm -hmm. I didn't love this game by any means, uh, especially not holistically. Yeah. So I, I thought, you know, just to get it out of the way, since you already said what you felt and how Jackson felt, I thought it was all right. It was fine. Uh, I will say it's, it's really interesting that Jackson liked it so much because he did not like the games before Origins. Yeah. Like Origins was the first Assassin's Creed game that he ever 
really liked. I think it's also kind of the first one that he ever played just because he was interested in it. Whereas before yeah, that, like, yeah. you know, we were into it. Our dad was kind of into it, at least for some of them. Yeah. It definitely makes sense why they made the changes they did, you know, all those sure. years ago when Origins came out, though. Because I, I think at that point, there was a new Assassin's Creed game every year for six years straight. Yep. And it was a lot. They were almost always pretty broken at launch. Unity being, you know, kind of the culmination of that, the, uh, <laughs> The ultimate broken game. <laughs> yeah. So people were getting tired of Assassin's Creed. I know for sure I was. I mean, Black Flag was the last one I I like bought, period. Um, yeah. I got Unity and Syndicate. Uh, they're both on PlayStation's like free games or whatever with the subscription service, which when that first launched, I went ahead and bought a year, so I still have it for a few more months. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I tried both Unity and Syndicate. And I honestly do need to say, like, they're good games at this point. I I think when they launched, it was more of an issue where everyone was tired of the games. It was the same thing basically every year for, once again, six years straight. Right. <laughs> but I think now with some time between playing, like, an older Assassin's Creed game and playing them, Unity was really fun. I really liked what they did with the the parkour and stuff in that Feels a lot smoother than Mirage in just about every facet imaginable, but we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I definitely see why they made the changes. And I think I would have liked Origins more if I had played it when it came out. I gave it a try sure. a few just last year, maybe the year before, and it wasn't super, it, it didn't pull me in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. That said, I, I think Mirage kind of pulled me in. I think having all of this time away from Assassin's Creed was really good and made me kind of appreciate what the games were doing and how they played. I'm I'm really back and forth on Mirage, if I'm honest. You know, I said I was kind of meh about it. I think that's more just an average of how I feel because I have times where I'm like, yeah, Assassin's Creed Mirage is really good and I really enjoy it. And then I have times when I'm playing Assassin's Creed Mirage and I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird because... I think that when you are in the thick of it and you're picking off enemies in this giant base with guards all over the place and you're trying to you know, get to a high-priority target or steal a particular item, I think there are moments when you're in the middle of that and you think like, yes, this is what this series should have been all along. Yeah. And then there are moments when you're not doing that where you're reminded that sometimes Ubisoft games are basically just a checklist with pretty graphics. <laughs> and I think that this game kind of falls into that uh, the further in you go. I think it starts really strong, but I think that by like the midpoint of the game, it's just you're kind of just going through the motions at that point. You know, got to got to find this item, got to kill this guy to get this, got to move this here. Like, it's very, I don't know. You just, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, the the stealth stuff stays really fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that it actually gets better as the game goes because you get more tools and more abilities and ways to kind of spice things up. But everything outside of those stealth segments gets so old so fast. We should probably dive in a little bit to the different aspects of the gameplay. Cause I, 
I think this game is a game of halves. Uh, there's the half where you're doing the stealth gameplay that's very good, and then there's the other half, which I think we'll get into a little bit more later. But I, I'd, I'd really like to get into the good half first. Yeah, I get that. There's definitely this sense that they had stuff they really paid a lot of attention to, and then they have stuff that they did not. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get to the stuff they paid attention to first. I think that the stealth in this game in particular is probably the best stealth has ever felt in an Assassin's Creed game. Just in yeah. terms of the way your character moves and being able to like dive between bushes and stuff like that. It's definitely kind of a simple stealth experience. It's not it's definitely not like Metal Gear Solid level. It's Sure. Every time an enemy sees you, they never respond with just, oh, I see a guy over there. They're like, huh? And then they stare at you for five (laughs) solid seconds and they're like, I think that's a guy. And then the thing on their head turns yellow. And then they look at you for another couple seconds before they're like, yeah, that's a guy. All right. Yeah. And there's also this sense that like they tried so hard to make it to where you could easily set up like different environmental kills. And stuff like that. Right. Stuff like that, where sometimes the guards just do incredibly dumb and unnecessary things. They'll be having a conversation next to an explosive barrel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't even have to hit those things with fire. You can just throw a a knife at it and it explodes. I mean, I don't know what's going on with that barrel. (laughs) Sometimes the way that the, the bases are laid out, it's like too separated. But I also kind of like that because it means you can do pretty dynamic and exciting things on like a lot of your kills. Yeah. Where it'll be like two people off by themselves and then one guy over here and then one guy over there like 100 feet away. (laughs) And it it does keep it exciting. I think that there really wasn't a point when I was trying a stealth, um, you know, trying to use stealth to take out a base or something that I wasn't enjoying the game. Other than on a rare occasion, I would get caught when I feel like I shouldn't. Like they would see me through something or there would be some inconsistencies in like how long it takes them to notice you. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I had a lot of fun anytime I was doing the stealth stuff in general. Yeah. This game, it kind of takes a lot of the stealth ideas from the RPG games where you can crouch and hide in bushes and you're completely invisible and you can jump out from the bushes and stab a guy and pull him into them. Stuff like that. Some of those ideas were in the older Assassin's Creed games. Maybe I just haven't played enough of them, but there was enough new stuff that I think made the stealth fun and interesting that I really enjoyed it. Part of that has to be just, this game is very short. I think that if this game was five hours longer, that the stealth would have kind of gotten old and definitely it would have overstayed its welcome at this point, at that point. But this game, with its, like, 15-ish hour runtime, is a really good length for the gameplay that it provides. I generally liked, anytime I was in a mission, I would say, I was having a pretty good time. You can do stuff like whistle for guards to come over to you to lure them into bushes. You can throw your knives just on the ground if you're trying to separate enemies, stuff like that. It's kind of fun to mess around with them set them up for a big crowd takedown by like dropping a bunch of boxes on them or picking them off one by one, maybe sicking a group of tigers on them. (laughs) Yeah. Like the game gives you plenty of options and 
the stealth feels good for how long the game is. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I think that this game is very punishing in its stealth. Not in the sense that you like instantly die or anything like that, but if you get caught in one of the stealth segments, you have to do the combat. Oh, this combat. It might be the worst combat I've played, like probably this entire console generation so far. I mean, it's terrible. It feels bad. You're incredibly weak. You have to rely way too much on dodges because enemies do unblockable attacks way too often. It's just poorly put together. I don't know. There were so many times early on in this game where if I got caught, I would just immediately reload because I did not feel like sword fighting anyone. Yeah, I think the combat is of an older era. (laughs) Like, this is the kind of combat that I think was fine when Assassin's Creed 1 came out in, like, 2007 or something like that. (laughs) Right. But nowadays, it just feels really dated and... It legitimately does feel like a punishment for getting caught in the stealth segment. Yeah. And there are some points in the story where you're forced to do it. And the game has plenty of different enemy types. There are like four or five different enemies that have different attack patterns and deal different amounts of damage or whatnot. Like they clearly put some thought into the enemies for combat, but your character's just hopeless in a sword fight. I think that the combat in this game is worse than it was in Assassin's Creed 2. It just it feels bad. It feels really bad. I don't know how it got to this point where it was this bad. It's like it's like Bossom is terrible with a sword, but so incredibly precise with any other weapon that it makes no sense. You know, I got to a point where, you know, later in the game I stopped where I was just reloading every time I would get caught. But I started just relying on throwing knives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like anytime I would get into a sword fight, I would just start throwing knives. And you have like a quick aim, but it locks onto like their feet for some reason. I have no idea why. So I put a bunch of uh, uh, ability points, which we'll get into later, into being able to throw more knives and collect the knives. And the knives are poison and they pierce enemy armor. <laughs> So that anytime I had to get into a big sword fight, I could just keep throwing knives. And between the knife damage and the poison damage over time, eventually they would go down without me having to swing my sword a single time. It's weird that it even lets you throw the knives in when you're in combat. Because by the time you get to combat, it's too late to use a knife. <laughs> At least from my experience. I I think it's just because it snaps to their feet so heavily. I don't get yeah. why it's like that. I think it's... I legitimately do think it is just to discourage using knives in battle because they they'll still yeah. do like one hit kills if you get a headshot. They're so right. good in stealth though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely essential in stealth. It ends up kind of being a situation where the way I did stealth at least is I would use all of my throwing knives and then I would go in. <laughs> like hmm. I wouldn't bother infiltrating the place until I had already depleted my knife supply. And almost every building would have a chest that had more knives in it. So there were some missions yeah. that I did just by killing everyone with the knives. And, you know, if there was a guy with armor or something like that, then I would sneak in and take him out. If I couldn't lure him to an explosive barrel or I guess an explosive pot. Well, and it wasn't just knives. You have five other tools in this game at your disposal at any given time. Um, you have a blowgun that can poison people or put them to sleep. 
You have just a, a trap that explodes if enemies get within range of it. You have uh, one that just distracts people, like it just makes a lot of noise and pulls them away from where they were positioned. There's another one I can't remember. Oh, a smoke bomb. So if you get caught, you can uh, make a quick getaway or set yourself up for some stealth kills. And I think the tools are really, really fun, and they add a really interesting layer to the stealth and like how you plan out taking down a base and things like that. I do think there are some balancing issues here, <laughs> um, especially when you consider that a couple of the tools can just do absolutely insane things as far as setting up kills. Like a smoke bomb, if you throw a smoke bomb at your feet... Everyone completely loses track of where you are, and you can just start stealth killing person after person after person. <laughs> like you can just keep smashing R one, and it'll just keep stabbing whoever's closest to you, and it's always a one hit kill. And like that's insane. The smoke bomb was definitely the most overpowered. There was a point when I would just use it to, uh, like, I would throw it directly at my target because of the cloud that it would make if you upgraded it. It would just it would be huge. It would be like a full room. And then you could just walk into the room, stab your target and leave with no issues. And I think all of them have interesting uses. Maybe not the noisemaker. I, I never really felt like that contributed a whole lot. The noisemaker was good if you were trying to set up like an environmental kill. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I, it could I, be There were multiple situations where I would do stuff like throw it. There are all these cranes all over Baghdad. It's a big issue. They just have cranes <laughs> yeah. with a bunch of heavy boxes on them. And they're only held up by a single buckle that can be taken out with a knife. What's going on? This is bad planning. <laughs> also, why why do you throw the knife at the buckle? I there's a metal buckle that holds like the two pieces of rope together that are holding up the the crates. Why is it that you throw the knife at the buckle and not the rope? It, there are a lot of very precarious design choices around Baghdad that are clearly just meant to be like set up for you to do, you know, stealth kills and weird parkour stuff and all that. And I think Assassin's Creed has always had that problem, but I think this this city is so dense that it's like everywhere you look, there's something that's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Every building in the city has barred doors that you can only open from the inside, but then no one's <laughs> <Right>. home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what were they even doing? <laughs> Did they also go in the window? <laughs> there was one yeah. room that had a barred door and the only way in was to destroy an exploding pot that was next to the doors like next to the bar closing the door does that guy just set off an explosive in his house every day when he gets home <laughs> there's this one building where there are three doors you have to go in that are all locked and you need keys from different people. And when you finally get inside, it's like it's like $40 and an outfit. <laughs> like, were they going through the trouble for that like every day or something? It's, it's really yeah. funny how the more heavily locked a door is, the more likely it's just to be a new outfit or or just die for your outfit. Something that only benefits Bossom, but for some reason was under, like, multiple levels of security. <laughs> the outfits in this game are kind of weird. I think it's really strange that there were only two outfits that you can buy from the shop. Yeah, I know. Why? Like, Just make them, put them in the environment or something. Yeah, it, it was very strange. I don't know why they went a lot of the directions they did with the, the cosmetics and stuff in this game. Um, Ubisoft also has... They're pretty egregious with some of their microtransactions. Like, there are, like, three outfits in the game or just, like, fully cosmetic outfits 
But if you look at the shop, there's like 50 more and they all cost like 10 human, like 10 real person dollars <laughs> to, to buy. And it's absolutely deranged that there are people actually spending that kind of money. So it's, it's almost as bad as like Unity. Unity had the thing where you could buy the credits that would let you skip the game, basically. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's wild. Ubisoft has always been like that, though. I mean, as far back as I can remember any of the Far Cry games or Assassin's Creed games or anything, they're just chock full of microtransactions. It's it's always weird, though, because it's, it's spending money to play less of the game. And then they just make the game <laughs> yeah. stupid long. But this game doesn't... This game doesn't have that. It just has... You know, there's a whole bunch of cosmetic items that you can get by paying money, but there's not like any story skippers or whatever. Right. I just when I was playing Unity, I was looking through the shops and there was a lot of stuff that was just like buy the in-game currency so you can skip missions or like (laughs) I think what it would do is it would let you automatically complete side objectives or something weird. And then there was also (laughs) an in-game shop that you could spend it at to buy cosmetics. So I guess that was just buying cosmetics yeah. with an extra step thrown in. Yeah. When Odyssey launched, you could just buy this one upgrade that increased the amount of XP you could get. But it was clear that the game's scaling for XP was based on people that had that add-on. So a lot of people at first were just saying like, yeah, I feel really underleveled all the time. And then they basically course corrected and got rid of that upgrade and then suddenly a lot of people were like actually this game isn't bad now it's always Uh, so weird when a game comes out in an absolutely terrible state and then a year passes and people play it and they're like actually i think this is a hidden gem i don't know why everyone gave it such bad reviews i see people (laughs) saying that about assassin's creed unity all the time and it's like assassin's creed unity got bad reviews because at launch it was terrible Cyberpunk's another one where everyone's just like, I think everyone was too tough on Cyberpunk. Or they'll say things like, Cyberpunk has always been the best game ever. And it's like, no, that game was so bad, PlayStation made them take it out of the shop. Yeah. There's no defending those games at launch. It's just a case where a good game came out, but it was just mired by so many technical issues that are we just supposed to ignore them? I think that there's a handful of people out there that genuinely think we should. They think that um, games are some kind of inherent blessing and not like a product. (laughs) It's also a lot of the same people that'll either play the game when it goes to Game Pass or they'll pay like $10 to buy the game on a huge sale. And they're like, yeah, this was a good value proposition. It's like the rest of us paid $60 and it wasn't good. (laughs) And actually, when I got an Xbox One, I got uh, it was like it was like two years after the console actually came out. And I got like a, a bundle that came with, it was like every Xbox One at the time was coming with Sunset Overdrive, but the specific one I got also came with Assassin's Creed, Black Flag, and Unity. Mm-hmm. And I remember Assassin's Creed Unity was one of the very first games I had played of this console generation. And just thinking like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like if this is what if this is what modern gaming is, I'm not that into it. I mean, it just, it looked bad. There were tons of bugs. There was all sorts of weird mechanical issues that made just doing simple things difficult. That picture of 
uh, Arno where his... His skin is missing? Yeah, but you can still see his eyeballs and his teeth. Like, that is just burned into my brain <laughs> at this point. Like, it is... That game was a mess. And I think that they kind of just have had consistent problems, whether it was bugs like that or if it was just horrible decisions like how they monetize more recent games. Mm -hmm. It's like Ubisoft can't just get it right with Assassin's Creed. I think Mirage is close. It's definitely a step in the right direction, but this is not a good enough game that I'm hopeful for the future. (laughs) I'm apprehensive at best. Yeah. I'd be really excited to see the Assassin's Creed games kind of go back to their roots at least every once in a while. Like, I mean, yeah. I think in an ideal world, they would alternate between, you know, doing one of those big RPG open world things, hopefully something closer to Odyssey or Origins than what they did with Valhalla. And then, you know, on the off years or, you know, maybe put like three or four years between every big RPG and then, you know, like every two years or something like that, they could do a normal Assassin's Creed or you know, right. Or maybe just alternate between them every two years or something like that. We don't need to get back yeah. to a point where there's a new Assassin's Creed game every year. I will not play them <laughs> yeah. if we do that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like even knowing that this is, the, this is the first one in a while and it's kind of a return to form. Like I was still skeptical about putting this game on our schedule. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we did now because I feel like it, it reminded me that I do have a lot of strong feelings about the Assassin's Creed series for better or for worse. But I was still like, there are 13 of these things. We don't, they don't deserve this much time. (laughs) I just, I really like bits and pieces of Mirage. And I think that a second attempt at the same thing could probably expand on the good parts and maybe push some of the bad parts off to the side or something like that. Yeah. At least put as much focus on the stuff that is solid, like, stealth and then maybe give a good combat system i'm not saying that they should ever get to a point where the combat is good enough that you just want to play the assassin's creed games like a brawler but i don't think that the combat should be that much of a punishment yeah it definitely shouldn't be i think like the stealth should should be emphasized but the combat should still be like fun when you get into it i don't think we need to be or punished with bad gameplay because we didn't do well at the other kind of gameplay especially considering that a lot of previous assassin's creeds have pulled off a balance just fine even before the switch to the rpgs i don't know i just feel like this game was clearly an afterthought in some ways and while i think it has a lot of really good ideas on paper it just doesn't execute on enough of them consistently enough that i'm like yeah this is the one now, if you're like us and you really like the Assassin's Creed games back in the day and then you fell off of them, I think this is a good... It's it's a really fun game to kind of take a, a walk down memory lane with, but I don't think it stands on its own legs enough where I'm like, yeah, this is the one. This is when we all get back on board. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear even just if you look at the developer of the game, what this was intended to be, because all of the Assassin's Creed games in the mainline series, with the exception of like, Assassin's Creed Rogue have been made by either Ubisoft Montreal or Ubisoft Quebec. And then this one is made by Ubisoft Bordeaux, which has mostly just been a support studio on their other Assassin's Creed games and stuff like that. I'm not saying necessarily that Bordeaux is a terrible team or anything. I'm just saying they clearly have an A team for these Assassin's Creed games. And then I guess a B team as well. They have two A teams and then they handed this game off to someone else. 
They were just like, yeah. we need to get something out yeah. of the door. And people seem to like these games back in the day. So can you do something like that in this engine that you guys probably haven't worked that much with that was not designed for this kind of gameplay at all? Yeah. So that's another issue I have. Like this game is very clearly in an RPG engine. The stealth doesn't play right in a lot of ways. The parkour definitely doesn't play right. You can tell how much yeah. of the emphasis there was. And I went back and played Unity and Black Flag a little bit to kind of prepare for this episode. The parkour in those games compared to the parkour in this game is night and day. Yeah. You have so many more options in those games. Black Flag and Unity are kind of interesting cases because Black Flag has the older parkour system. Unity has like this newer styled thing that they were going for, which is stylistically very different. It's kind of focused more on being showy and parkoury over free running. It's it's definitely more apt to say like the older Assassin's Creed games had free running and Assassin's Creed Unity had parkour. Assassin's Creed Mirage is definitely closer to the free running kind of style where it's not super stylish. It's mostly just to get the job done. But it also gets rid of a lot of things like it kind of de-emphasizes stuff like wall ejects and stuff like that that would make parkour free running in the older games more complex if you wanted it to be. It's very clear that the free running in Mirage is just made to go through these very strictly defined obstacle courses that they've already set up or to, you know, climb straight up a building. It's not made to yeah. do weird stuff at all. It definitely feels like that was not a focus like it was in some older games. Like this was more just a necessary method of getting around yeah they were like oh the assassin's creed game have parkour so our game will have parkour and this is more of an issue that's been in the whole franchise since origins i mean the parkour in the rpgs has been bad especially compared to something like unity or black flag where black flag had years of experience on doing what they were doing at the time which you know like i said was the more functional free running but giving you options like you know wall ejects stuff like that that would let you i guess twist things around a little bit and make it feel more unique or look cooler or get to places that you might not necessarily places that you're not intended to go to i suppose and mirage is yeah. very functional I, I don't know it's not like a huge complaint but it definitely i think a better parkour system would have made getting around the city more fun because I think that getting around the city in Assassin's Creed Mirage is very tedious. Certainly the worst part of the game, in my opinion. The fact that it takes so long and it's so uninteresting to get around is why I don't think this game just having good stealth is enough. Because you spend so much time not doing assassin stuff, just walking from point A to point B. Yeah. It also, it has the Ubisoft gameplay stuff that everyone's been complaining about for years, where... The map is too big and bloated. There's too much just stuff on it. I don't necessarily think it's as bad as a lot of the other games, but no, but it's, it's still, still there. And like having to go climb all of the buildings to get the different synchronization points so you can see all of the map is tedious at this point more than anything. Yeah, it was a cool idea in 2007, and I think it still worked in a lot of the early Assassin's Creed games, but it's it's not it anymore. Especially considering how close together they are in this game. Like, you can... There are points where you'll have what looks like the entire map uncovered, and then right in the middle of it, there's a viewpoint you haven't been to. 
a lot of them are really samey too. And maybe, you know, comparing this this game's interpretation of Baghdad to Rome is a little unfair. I think a lot of it does just come down to the fact that like I know a lot more about Rome because I went to American schools than I know about Baghdad. Sure, sure. But I didn't find exploring the city to be as interesting as Brotherhood especially. Brotherhood's map was really big and bloated. Still have that same issue if I went back and played it now. I tried playing it a few months ago, actually, and I did not. It's it's too much. Baghdad's too samey. It's not super fun to explore. And it's just surrounded by a bunch of desert, which is functionally useless. Yeah. There's nothing cool in the desert like there was in Origins. And I'm not saying that Origins had, like... The deserts in Origins weren't exactly chocked full of stuff, but... They were more interesting than the deserts in this game. I don't even think there are any missions that take you to the deserts. Other than maybe... There's one mission near the end that makes you ride a horse through the desert. I don't know. It just feels like it's there to separate the two main parts of the map. And no other real reason. I do think that the the actual like buildings in Baghdad... They work well with the parkour system in this game. A lot of buildings feel good to run from one to the other... I mean, I think the Assassin's Creed games have been doing this kind of world design long enough that it's not exactly revolutionary or anything. You know, when you do a trailing mission in this game, I don't hate it because I think that the rooftops make it easy to do that kind of gameplay. I think that when you're in the city, it's pretty... Well, I was going to say it's pretty pretty, but I, I think that the city of Baghdad itself is beautiful. Just it's only one type of beauty and it doesn't really stray from that at any different area in the map. It just feels like this game could have been physically a lot smaller and it would have actually been better for it. Yeah, I almost wonder if this would have been better as a DLC. Like it was yeah. it was originally planned to be a DLC for Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Right. And which makes a lot of sense when you consider the fact that this is a game about a character that is very very important in the story of Valhalla and already kind of had an end to his arc take place in that game. Mm-hmm. So this this game kind of feels, in the grander narrative, this game feels really unnecessary, but even as its own story, it just feels kind of underwhelming. Yeah, I don't feel like the story particularly grabbed me at any point. It, it's mostly broken down into, you get into the city of Baghdad, and you need to track down the different members of the Order through this like big investigation table thing. And then you want to assassinate all of them. And there are five separate contracts that you can do in any order, more or less, or five separate investigations, I suppose. None of them are particularly interesting. I think that they take you to interesting places where you get to do the fun stealth combat that we were talking about earlier. But I, I don't know, the story didn't exactly grip me at any point. I generally liked Basim. I liked Rashawn a lot. But... Beyond those two characters, I never really found myself caring too much about anyone else. I definitely didn't... I have no idea what the Order was doing in Baghdad, other than being bad people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seemed like they were just doing normal, like, wealthy, elite, bad people things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not even, like... like... I don't need too much of a reason to kill those people, because, you know, some of them have slaves, and honestly, that's good enough for me. If you tell me a guy sure, has slaves, sure. then fine, I'll go kill him. It's no problem at all. But I don't know. I didn't feel terribly tied to the narrative. 
it's just fine. I mean, I don't hate it or anything. It's just that, you know, it's just, it's just there. Yeah. <laughs> it's passable. Yeah. I think it ends really badly. The ending's bad. Without getting into any spoilers, it's a situation where there's some story stuff at the beginning of the game that's important, and then there's the middle. And the middle can happen. Anything that happens in the middle can happen in any order. It doesn't have any effect on Bassam in any way that actually matters beyond just getting you to the ending of the game. Um, yeah. I feel like the beginning of the game from... Bassem as a young man until he becomes an assassin like that stuff's important and that at the end of the game when you uh, I guess he returns to the place where he was trained to be an assassin I think that's a vague enough way to explain it that I don't feel bad for spoiling anything like the stuff that happens between is more or less just filler with no real consequence on Bassem as a character or on the world as a whole it's the kind of thing that if this was a DLC, could have been cut out. I think Assassin's Creed Mirage was a very good three-hour DLC that was somehow stretched into a 15-hour video game. I don't really feel like I have too much more to say about this game because I feel like the more I get into it, the more conflicted I am. <laughs> it's just, I liked a lot, and then I didn't like a lot, and now here we are. <laughs> yeah. I played, there is a, you know... There's the point in my life before I played Assassin's Creed Mirage, and then there's the point of my life where I'm at now, and nothing has changed. It's not bad by any means, but I would have a hard time recommending this game to people. Yeah, I mean, if I wanted to summarize, it would be, like I said earlier, if you liked the series a lot, you know, 10 plus years ago, and you kind of fell out, I think this is a good one to give another shot to, but I, I don't know that there's anyone else I would be like, yeah, you got to play this game. You know, the stealth is a lot of fun, it's just that you're not doing the stealth a big enough percentage of the game for that to make up for its problems. So I do hope that they make more games in this style and that they have a little bit more time and a few more resources to make that happen. But overall, it's just, like you said, fine. <laughs> I, I would be happy to see another game in this style that kind of cleans up the gameplay and ideally has a more interestingly written story with a little bit more meat to it. <laughs> well, that's already a lot of talk about Assassin's Creed Mirage. So I think that means it's time to pull the plug. Jason, what is something else that you've been into? So in preparation for the great Spider-Man 2, which as of recording dropped two days ago, I decided to go back and play my old favorite Spider-Man game from growing up, Ultimate Spider-Man. Came out around like 2005. Was an interesting time for video games, but I think Spider-Man in particular was doing pretty well in 2005 because it was fresh off the heels of Spider-Man 2, the movie game that everyone loves and talks about the, the web swinging from constantly. And Ultimate Spider-Man is in the same engine, so it has the same web swinging. More or less with, you know, some additional <laughs> yeah. features added in and some things taken out. And I got to say, I think I'm nostalgia blinded to Ultimate Spider-Man's issues. Because whenever I see people talking about it now, they almost always talk about how poorly aged it is and how everyone that likes it is just completely blinded by nostalgia. So I think those people are right. Because I played 
Ultimate Spider-Man this week, and that game is awesome. <laughs> the web swinging in that game is so fun and unique and like so much deeper than it had any reason to be, especially back then. It kind of made me realize that I wish the new Spider-Man games had more races and stuff like that. Because Ultimate mm-hmm. Spider-Man is definitely a game that is horribly padded with just nothing <laughs> in between yeah. your really strong story, at least for the time. And, you know, I I think that that's the big reason people don't like it so much, because between every story mission, the game will be like, okay, go do five crimes, or go stop five crimes. It doesn't do tell you to do I do exclusively use the terminology do crime. Yeah. <laughs> uh it tells you to go stop five crimes and do a couple races and, you know, it also has these things called combat tours where it basically just sends you to different points in the city and it's like, okay, there's a bunch of guys here, beat them up. Yeah. But I think at the same time, the story in the game is so fun and at the time was actually canon to the comics, which I think is really interesting. Um, You know, a big reason I picked Ultimate Spider-Man in particular to go back to was because it has a similar storyline to what's going on in Assassin's... Not Assassin's Creed. What's going on in Spider-Man 2. You know, it's it's got this big focus on the the symbiote suit and Venom and how Spider-Man's dealing with that. I say it has a big focus. That's generally what the main crux of the story is. It's more or less just a bunch of different villains that come in for one or two missions that you need to follow to a certain place and then beat the crap out of. (laughs) Which sounds simple and uninteresting, but when you put that together with the writing, which is really fun, like I really like the way Spider-Man acts in the game in particular. He's funny at times, but not too funny. He's in that... (laughs) the Goldilocks zone for Spider-Man of he tells a lot of jokes. Most of them are really bad, but they all feel like Spider-Man jokes. Yeah. I think that the game really nailed what Spider-Man was as like who Spider-Man was as a character. Yeah. Even for all the things I don't think it got right for, you know, as a video game, but I do have really, really fond memories of specific cutscenes and specific lines from that game because I feel like they just nailed Spider-Man. Yeah. I think that specifically, I really enjoy Spider-Man as a character. I like the combat well enough. I think it's kind of fun and arcadey in a way that a lot of other Spider-Man games kind of seem too scared to be. At the time, yeah, because the combat in the video in the movie video games were really bad. Like, yeah. it just felt like a lot of just beating on guys. Spider Ultimate Spider Man has this focus on more being more acrobatic. Like, he has a lot of combos where he can just jump in the air and then kick a guy, and then bounce back up into the air to kick another guy, and he can jump off of walls and stuff like that mid combo. And at the end of every well, when you defeat every enemy, you have to web them up or they'll just get back up and you have to fight them all over again, which I think is kind of a neat mechanic. It can be tedious at times, but 
Yeah. It's neat. Um, it also has a playable Venom, which is pretty cool. I like the way Venom plays. He feels a lot more like the Hulk than you... I At least more than I would expect, but I think that's more just... The fact that Hulk hasn't had too many video games. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the only the game character. where Venom's been playable, if, if I'm remembering correctly. I mean, that sounds right. I can't think of any example off the top of my head. He kind of controls Unless like, you want to count. a wild beast. <laughs> because yeah. I guess if you want to count like Marvel games uh, as a like oh yeah larger Marvel games like um, Rise of the Imperfects and Ultimate Alliance Three. Was he playable in like Rise that. of the Imperfects? He was. Yeah, that game was wild. Yeah. I think Marvel media in general, it wasn't all great back in the day, but I think it was certainly unique and interesting. <laughs> Venom's pretty cool in this game, though. He has uh, like this locomotion jump, they call it, where he just flings himself way up in the air. He has kind of a web zip thing where he pulls himself forward with his tendrils, and then um, he has a combo move that you can do on any non-boss enemy where he picks them up and then he folds them in half, breaking their back. And that is awesome. <laughs> Every time you do it, yeah. it's funny. Yeah. I don't know. I really liked Ultimate Spider-Man when I went back to it. Like, I I intend to finish it again. I don't know if I'm going to do anything crazy, like get 100% on it. Um, oh, I, I left a whole point dangling earlier. I really like the races in Ultimate Spider-Man. And I know it sounds dumb because there are like 150 or some stupid number of them in the game. Maybe it's 75. I don't know. It's way too many races when you think about it. But when you're actually doing the races, they feel really cool because they test you on being like really precise with your movement and also taking advantage of stuff that you can do with the web swinging that you can't do in like any other Spider-Man game. And I, I can't think of any other game other than, I mean, I guess, I think the movie games all had races in them, but none of them had races that were as complex or difficult as Ultimate Spider-Man. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the time, it'll ask you to do crazy stuff like web swing into a building and then jump off of the building backwards into a, a marker and then jump forwards into another marker and then land perfectly on the top of a billboard. And I know that that yeah. just sounds like really annoying and tedious, but the fact that the game is willing to test you on that kind of precision is wild. And <laughs> it feels like you have so much control over Spider-Man and how he gets around the city and it, it's kind of wild because when I first picked the game up, I thought that the web swinging felt kind of weird and way too light. But as you get into more and more of the complexity to it, and the fact that the game actually expects you to get into that complexity if you want to 100% it or you know fully complete it at least. Yeah. It's wild and it's awesome. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, some of the races are insanely difficult, though. Like, I I spent nearly 30 minutes on one of the hard races yesterday. 
And I'm pretty sure that there's another difficulty of races after the hard ones. I'd like to go back and try all that stuff now because, you know, the little bit I've played of, well, little bit, the little bit of time that we've had Spider-Man 2, I've definitely felt like I want to know what the limits are because <laughs> it gets rid of a lot of the, um, like, like you can go much faster. There's not as many restrictions about what you, what the game will let you do with your, your webs. And like, I want to know what someone that's like really, really great at that can do. And I feel like some of the older games kind of, they didn't put those safety nets in. Mm -hmm. So they already kind of had that. Yeah. Something I really like what insomniac did with the web swinging in Spider-Man one and Spider-Man miles Morales kind of has, it's an upgraded version of the same system. But it feels like there are these guardrails in place that prevent you from failing, but also prevent you from doing really cool stuff. <laughs> mm. Like the fact that there's this essentially an air cushion uh, at street level where the game will not let you hit the ground. Spider-Man, Ultimate Spider-Man doesn't have that at all. And it has something that everyone really likes where if you get too close to the ground, like you'll run along the ground for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Spider-Man 2 doesn't have that limit. But it also doesn't have the running on the ground thing. So, you know, it's it's a little bit of progress forward, I'll say in that. But it also feels mm -hmm. like a step back in some ways. I do really admire that Spider-Man 2 will just let you slam yourself into the ground if you're not being careful enough with your web swinging. At least you have to right. go into the options and turn off the swing assist. But I, I like that it takes those guardrails down. And I feel like there have been some moments where I did stuff that I know the game would not have let me do if I had that swing assist on, like in the first couple games. But this isn't talking about that. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, it also has physics-based, uh, you know, like the momentum-based web swinging and stuff. It feels really good. But That's a lot of talk about Ultimate Spider-Man from 2005. So I'll hand it over to you. What have you been up to this week? <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Dropout, as I've talked about on a couple of other episodes and on the stream and stuff recently. Why I even gave it any of my attention was Dimension 20, something that really interested me, but I had a really hard time getting into. I was always fascinated with actual plays. I listened to tons of actual play podcasts. I constantly, like, that, that actual plays are always my fallback if I don't know what to listen to or, you know, whatever while I'm in the car or doing stuff around the house. So I finally decided to sit down and really give Dimension 20 an honest shot because last season, season 19, was a new series called Mentopolis. And it was a series that all of the characters were playing parts of the human brain. They were playing things like attention and the conscience and... Um, impulse and hyperfixation. They were playing the, you know, the different parts of, of a person and it all took place inside one particular character's brain. And the main reason I decided to watch this season was because they brought on two guests that I really, really love that it, it had, um, Jimmy Wong, who is a, a rocket jump alum and now on the dungeons and daddies podcast, which is another, I think you mean Freddie Wong, Freddie Wong. Jimmy's yes. Geez. Right. They brought on Freddie Wong um, who I, who I love. And then they had Hank green, who is 
you know, one of the most interesting people on the internet and always such, such, such good and informational and interesting content that I, I really adore. So I decided to check this out because I really like them and I really like Brennan Lee Mulligan as a DM and was just absolutely floored by the storytelling, the presentation, how the characters or how the players committed to their characters. It was just so good and it told such a fun story and it was only six episodes, I think. But it kind of motivated me to go back and watch some of the older stuff. And so I've, you know, I've checked out a couple of the previous seasons, and then they're already into their next season, which is a very, very cool concept. It's called Burrow's End, and uh, the, the players are playing a family of stoats, which are little rodents if you're unfamiliar. And basically the whole idea is that everyone in the party is related to each other, which has led to some really, really cool moments between characters that I have not seen in a lot of actual play stuff. Um, and I think Abria Iyengar as, as a DM is, is incredible. So, I mean, it's just been really, really good so far. Actual plays are really hard to recommend to people because even though they were kind of my gateway to D&D, I wouldn't recommend them to a lot of people that aren't already familiar and if you're already familiar with D&D, you're probably already, like, you've already at least checked some of this stuff out. <laughs> but I, I think if you're the type of person that likes D&D, that likes actual plays, I think Dimension 20 is about as good as it gets. Um, Brendan Lee Mulligan, I think, probably is the most entertaining DM in the business. I think he's just so fun. He creates such interesting scenarios. He reacts so well to his players in, like, all context. I mean, there's a reason that he's pretty much regarded as, like, the biggest name out there barring Matt Mercer. So <laughs> I need to go back and finish Mentopolis. I watched the first couple episodes, but I, I never finished it. It's tough because the episodes are so long. I think even the shortest episode is like an hour and 40 minutes or something. Um, and that's, a, that's just a recurring actual play problem. I mean, I've been listening to not another D and D podcast and their episodes range from like an hour to three hours. There was like a series finale I listened to long, not too long ago that was like four hours long. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to make that kind of time. But I do think it's really, really good to just... It's good to have on while you're doing something else. I really like watching Dimension 20 while I'm playing something on my Switch or you know maybe even something like Slay the Spire on my phone. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good thing to be like your primary focus but not like the only thing you're paying attention to. <laughs> But that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, there are a handful of ways you can do that. First, on Twitter slash X, it's at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram, it's at Totally Biased Media. And third, we are on twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media, where we stream at least every other week. We're coming up on the end of the year of the Kong, which I know we've been saying for a long time, but we mean it. <laughs> uh, we're, we're thinking it'll probably only be one more stream before we finish the game, or the last game, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. It's been a lot of fun. We're excited to, to go some other places in the near future, but yeah, come in and check it out. If you have suggestions for the show or want to submit your own reviews for some upcoming games, like Super Mario Wonder, which will be our next review. Um, wait, no, Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 will be our next review. Uh, you can send those to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to read what you think about the games on the show. Um, we'd love to engage however we, however we reasonably can, so please reach out to us whatever way is best for you. But for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. Oh, wait.
And Jackson's not here. So you just felt the bias. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Goodbye.